accessing library computer data. Out there, there are no saints. Just people. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. We're continuing our run through Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Right now we're up to the episode called Starship Down. The seventh episode of the fourth season. It aired on November 6, 1995. Written by David Mack and John J. Ordover. David Mack is famous as being a uh, Star Trek, a fan fiction, but a Star Trek uh, book writer. He's directed by Alexander Singer. In this episode, Cisco defends a Karema ship when it is attacked by the Jem'Hadar. Meanwhile, Quark and the Karema trade minister argue about the value of dishonesty in trading before having to work together to disarm a Jem'Hadar torpedo. We're joined by Iona for this one. Iona, how are you? Nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you too, Wes. Yeah, thanks very much for uh, agreeing to come on the show. We were introduced by a mutual person on Twitter. Um, Do you want to introduce yourself and how you came to Star Trek and what you sort of do in real life outside of that? So um, I'm a writer and editor, and uh, I live in India, in Bombay. And I started watching Star Trek with Next Generation back in the in the late '80s, and uh, I've watched uh, Deep Space Nine I think three times now. I'm on my fourth watching. And I first watched Deep Space Nine during a time when I was very, very um, depressed. And I think it's one of the things that sort of kept me going was watching multiple Deep Space Nine episodes, drinking gin and tonics and eating more Bombay mix than any human being should ever eat. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a... So you're an expert, I guess, is the way to say you're pro- you're more of an expert than I am at Deep Space Nine at this point, too. So it'll be it'll be interesting to talk about. Um, I, I would assume that just knowing from what you uh, what you write for and your sort of um, views on things, would you say that DS9 is your favorite of the Star Trek series? Absolutely. Yes, I do have a very poor memory, though, which is kind of a blessing when it comes to Star Trek, because it means that I enjoy rewatchings probably more than I would otherwise. Yes, yeah, it's, the, it's the benefit of um, the benefit of forgetfulness is you can enjoy everything yes. over and over again. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to uh, I'm going to take a break. We're going to play an audio clip. Me and Iona are going to come back, and we're going to break down the episode that is called Starship Down. The Jemadar are powering up their weapon systems. They are targeting the Karma ship. They're here to punish us for meeting with you. If I give myself up and assume full responsibility, they may spare my ship. I'm not about to turn you over to them. Open a channel. This is Captain Benjamin Sisko of the USS Defiant. Stand down, or we'll be forced to... Return fire! The Karma ship is coming about. They're moving away, Captain. Tell your people to hold position. We can't protect them if they run. The Karma aren't responding to our hails. The Jimadar are changing course. They're going after the Karma ship. Move to intercept. All right, so getting into this one, um, it's a disaster episode. Star Trek tends to like doing disaster episodes. They don't do it quite as much as you would think based on the premise of the series and everything, but they they do enjoy a good disaster episode where the ship is compromised and people have to work together. Uh, I'd say that this one is actually a combination of balance of terror from the original series and disaster from TNG, uh, which is probably the sort of... Uh, 
the prime example of a disaster episode. Um, it's a it's an episode of the show that has been a little bit odd in its placement in the fourth season, but I think that it's a interesting idea. Uh, my main criticism, the way this usually works, I own is just kind of a general take at the top, but I'll, I'll throw it mm-hmm. to you by just asking that or saying um, this is written by David Mack and John Ordover, who are known as uh, Star Trek fiction writers, uh, who never really worked as writers on the show, but they are fairly prolific as book writers for the Star Trek series. And without insulting them, because this is a TV process where the room obviously rewrote their script, the writer's room of the show, this episode feels to me like it's a little bit of a fan fiction episode. It feels like it, it was born of an idea and the rough draft skeleton came from a fanish interpretation of what the show would be. Um, do you have any thoughts about the, uh, about the episode in general, or do you want to just bounce off of that point? Um, I'm not sure about, I'm not sure what you mean by fanish interpretation, but, uh, I can say a few things about how I feel about the episode. Interestingly, when you asked me which episode I wanted, um, and out of the ones that were still unclaimed, this was the one I chose, I had a much rosier memory of it than, um, I, you know, I felt much more enthusiastic about it in retrospect than I did re-watching it and trying to analyze it for this podcast. And I think that is because um, it's because of something fundamental for me to Deep Space Nine, um, which is that Deep Space Nine is very much based on personal relationships. Our personal relationships take play a much larger role in DS9 than I think they do in either Next Generation or Voyager, for example. And Voyager is um, a wonderful show as far as the premise goes. I love the situations in Voyager. I enjoy the explorations of the Delta Quadrant. I like the different species they come across. I find the idea of Voyager in many ways more exciting as a as an adventure show, um, and I love many of the individual episodes, but Deep Space Nine is a far more, for me, a far more sophist- sophisticated and engaging show in a literary sense, and that's because what's important in DS9 is not so much how interesting individual characters are, as their relationships, that almost all the relationships in Voyager uh, fall rather flat. The only one that has real um, tension is uh, Janeway's relationship with Seven of Nine. Whereas in Deep Space Nine, almost all of the individual couplings are uh, fascinating because of the kinds of trajectories they go through and the mixture between attraction and conflict that we see happening with the pairs of characters. And this episode is very much based on little vignettes of paired characters trying to work things through together. And a lot of that has to do with the relationships between those characters and is and that's quite specifically thematized in that episode. So I think that's why I had this episode in held this episode in such fond memory in its context of DS9 as a whole, 
Whereas when I look at it as a separate work, I'm not as impressed by it as I, as I thought I was going to be. Yeah, I agree that the, um, the, the episode is actually the weakest of the season, I think, so far. So I was, I was interested that you had chosen it. It sounds like it was a little bit of faulty memory um, coming through, which happens with all these Star Trek episodes. But it's, a, it's an episode of the show that I called fanish in the sense that I have a sense of fan fiction, if you're not aware. Fan fiction is um, sort of tie-in fiction written by fans of the series. Mm. And it's not canon, mm. but it's sort of fans having fun with it. And fan fiction has a problem where if people are not particularly great writers and they start writing something, they tend to have a skewed version of what they think the characters should act like. And you can you sort of see it in that nothing feels actually real to the show. Like it feels like someone else who's not particularly familiar with how to write the show came in and wrote the episode for you. Um this one feels a little fanish in that sense because, as you were saying, while it's all character vignette based, I don't feel like they actually get the characters right in any of the sequences. They all feel a little bit off of what the show has previously shown us between them. Um, the biggest example, I think, is Kira's characterization here, which feels far too religious and deferential to Cisco in a way that I'm not sure the show has ever sold us before. Uh, that would be my take of it. Everything felt a little bit off. I was just wondering what you thought about that. If you thought that was the main reason for the weakness or you had some other reason to think that it wasn't as strong as you remembered. Actually, no. I, I mean, I felt that. So taking the relationships one at a time, let's start with uh, Kira, Kira and Cisco um, part. I, I felt that it was a little bit repetitious. And in particular, I... Bajoran folklore is so boring. It is. <laughs> how do they how do they manage to evolve such a sophisticated culture and have such utterly boring folklore and literature? Actually, I think this is a recurring problem in Star Trek that also um Cardassian literature is terrible and so I gather is Klingon literature and Vulcan literature. Um there must have been some creative more interesting creative people from these different species humans can't be surely the only ones who can write good fiction the sort of fiction within the fiction um but i felt that um i felt nana visitors acting in that episode was um superb personally looking back at it and i also feel as though that clearly is an element of Cisco and um, Kira's relationship. And so I didn't find it so unbelievable, especially under the kind of conditions of her nursing Cisco through this concussion and the emotionally heightened moment. I find it quite believable, her attitude. I just felt the dialogue lacked a little wit and sparkle. And it was a bit tedious, both the story and the praying. But I was quite convinced by Kira's attitude here. I, I find that Kira, what happened, well, first of all, the, the, you're right about the Bajorans. The Bajorans are tremendously boring for being such a, a focal point of the show. They never really bothered to flesh out what the Bajoran religion is all about. They just use vague terms like prophets and prophecies and prayers and things. They never really get specific with them. Um, it's a big problem. And Kira, in general, 
I think even outside of this episode leading into it is very inconsistent with what she feels about the religion. She's obviously pious in a way that all the Bajorans are, but she also seems like she's a little bit more of an outsider to the religion than a lot of the more uh, conservative Bajorans are. And I, I, I'm not sure about that. So remember the episode, um, I don't remember the name, but you remember the episode when Kai Wynn, uh, sorry, when um, Wynn, she's not Kai then uh, at that stage, oh, sure. comes to the station and um, interferes with um, Keiko O'Brien's school because she wants them to teach. She wants Keiko to teach um, about the... Uh, the celestial temple and the prophets rather than the wormhole and the wormhole alien. So she wants, she, she wants to religiously censor Keiko's science class. And, um, and Dak says in a sort of appalled way that it's surprising how many people she has on her side, Wynne has on her side when she's clearly uh, a religious fanatic. And Kira says she has me mm-hmm. on her side. She's got my support. Well, the Kira is just by by the nature of what Kira is, is that she has to be put into this spot of uh, being a Bajoran believer who has sort of been, you know, one of the themes of Star Trek is that once you're put into Starfleet and the Federation, the values of the Federation will overtake whatever values you previously had, kind of is a that that's the sort of uh, watering down. And, you know, Garrick and Quark have mentioned that in previous episodes. Um the thing about Kira is that because she's port- she's always played against more conservative Bajoran, she's played against the Vedics and she's played against the Kais and she's played against sort of uh, true believers who come to the station looking for one prophecy or another. And Kira's been a little bit um, shown the other side of the coin just by nature of having been on the show for so long. And so... I think the the inconsistency I see in Kira is that when it's a Bajoran episode where her faith has to be examined, her faith is immediately upfront with everything. It is it's there's not a lot of nuance to it. In other episodes that don't deal with Bajoran faith, it's very sidelined. She she's never very concerned about things until a Vedic appears on the episode, until there's a prophecy that she has to deal with. And I feel it's a little bit inconsistent just because she feels like she has a little bit of a split personality that doesn't translate between those kind of focused episodes. So I I feel like she should have lines that are more Bajoran driven in non-Bajoran episodes. And that would make me feel that she's more of a whole. But in, in this case, I just feel that the her her problem with Cisco seems to come on so strongly that I'm surprised that they'd never really hinted at it before. I would have appreciated a little bit of a more subtle buildup. I think it's, they're limited by the fact that they're, she's one of four stories in the episode and they don't have a lot of time to build on it. I think it's, it's a story that would have been better if it was focused entirely on their relationship, because to me, it's just, the, the problem it comes down to the structure, which I think all the stories have is that because there are so many stories going on in here and they're all character based, they don't have a lot of time to really delve into it and they come across as kind of half-assed by the end of it. You know, I I mean, I don't feel that there's a contradiction. Um, well, there is a contradiction, but I feel it's a very human and normal contradiction between Kira's role as, um, I mean, she's not, she's not officially part of the Federation, she's not part of Starfleet, but her role within that sort of military system and also her... Uh, beliefs, and that's partly because I, um, 
just to get a little bit uh, biographical here, uh, autobiographical here, I know a lot of um, Zoroastrian reformers, so I'm a Parsi, a Zoroastrian, uh, who are extremely liberal and humanist in their outlook, but are very devout. So that's a combination I'm very used to seeing, and which might be a little jarring if you're not accustomed to this, but I think it's quite a common way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Would you... It's that... Oh, go ahead. Yes, go on. Go on, yes. Well, it, it, it's just a... Kira, uh, Kira being fleshed out that way as a dual personality sounds wrong, but it's sort of being a complicated character who has conflicting beliefs about everything is something that would work for me. Uh, it's just the fact, I think, that the Bajoran religion is so bland and vague that whenever it comes up with these kind of crisis of faith that Kira would have, it never really seems to stick for me. And I, I wish that they had explored this more. I think that the Cisco and Kira relationship actually makes a lot of sense in this episode. It just sort of comes out of nowhere to me. And I wish that they had built off of it. And I wish that they had explored it further. Um, you know, all the way down to the ending where they decide that they want to play baseball with each other and hang out and stuff like that. Um, not being able to see Cisco's point of view of this is equally frustrating because we've we've been told a lot about Cisco's point of view of being the emissary, but we haven't really seen him in action. You get a lot of cutscenes of mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. telling you that oh, Cisco avoided this ceremony because he's uncomfortable. Cisco is, to my memory, Cisco has never commented on the emissary role in a way. It's always done this very secondhand way, and I think that that's kind of frustrating. Yes, I think certainly up to this point in the series. Um, I think he does comment on it later. Um, And if I were him, I would feel extraordinarily awkward. I think too awkward to comment. So I give him a little, I give the writers a little bit of benefit of the doubt about that. Although um, why there is not some snippet of conversation with Dax, for example, about his feelings that I don't quite, I don't quite understand, but I can see why he avoids this topic with Kira. What is your, what is your understanding at this point in the series of what the emissary is supposed to be? Because to me, they describe the emissary role so vaguely again, that I'm not sure the writers really want to take a stab at what it means to be the emissary. Uh, They're sort of scared of going too far down that rabbit hole, I think. And they just, they'd rather have him be that role and have it be on the surface level and just something that they can tie into Bajor every now and then. And they're not particularly interested in um, exploring. As you say, they do get into this further down the line to um, mixed reviews, I guess would be the way, but we'll get there when we get there. But what do you think about Cisco as the, or the writer's understanding of the emissary? I think the emissary is there to herald the opening of the wormhole and also eventually the destruction of the power wraiths. So it's, he's like the prophet of uh, a new religion, even though the religion isn't new, but it's the, he's the Muhammad figure. Yeah. It's the, it's the more orthodox, um, it's, you know, Muhammad casting those uh, Al, um, Al-Lat and the other um, gods out of the temple in, Medi- in Mecca, I think. Mm-hmm. It's, um, 
it's you know the the um the conventional prophet coming along and getting rid of the old autochthonous pantheistic local gods with this more potentially international religion or religiosity. So I think that's what the emissary is about. What I feel is that there is a lack of I'm struggling to express this, uh, but I think there's a lack of, of teachings that actually impact behavior in the Bajoran religion. So there's a lot of ritual stuff. There's going to the Bajoran temple and um, wearing the earring. Having these sort of wearing the earring. Well, I think the earring is more of a local custom rather than something specifically religious. Mm hmm. Isn't the earring about family surnames? Oh, I think have this the kind m- of earring you wear. Yeah, reflects your family surnames, which is part of an old caste system that they used to have, which comes up in a later episode uh, when we have. I don't remember the name of this episode, but um, you remember later in the series, somebody wants to revert to the old Bajoran caste system, mm-hmm. and uh, Kira attempts to go along with this. And her caste was artists, and she has to become a potter, and she makes a horrendous, a ham-fisted job of it. <laughs> because she's not part of the warrior caste. Right, yeah. And the earrings are a kind of throwback to that. Um, but I don't know, you know, how, how, how much that is related to the teachings of the religion. So you have to go to the temple and you do a kind of meditation and you have this sort of hallucinogenic experience with the orbs. I think we could see the orbs as a hallucinogen. So it's like taking Impecatua or something. Yep. And, but what are the actual teachings for your day to day? So you have to fast on Hasbara and it's Haspera, it's during Haspera that this episode takes place in Haspera. But Haspera seems to be this new festival they've initiated to give thanks for the coming of the emissary. But apart from that, are there any dress codes? Are there any sexual codes? Are there, um, are there any um, dietary restrictions? You know, I don't see I don't see how the religion impacts on people's lives, and for something that is so central to the country's identity, I think that's a little odd. Yeah, no, we're never told what a good Bajoran is uh, in the eyes of a Bajoran, uh, because they they don't really seem to have a they have a sort of bland, you know, be good people type thing it seems to be but it's it never really delves into all the the religions all have different guides as to what makes you a good uh, believer in that religion they're all somewhat similar and they're all somewhat different from each other and the bajoran ones are just never fully fleshed out in that regard um and you know especially I, since it's basically a theocracy or a semi-theocracy on Bajor. yes yes right so you think it would have very large impacts on how these people actually exist with each other, but we're, we're never really given any of that. So maybe the vagueness of the religion f- fits into the general vagueness of this episode. Um, 
but we can we can push on to the the next uh there's a couple of the character interactions here i don't know if you want to talk about dax bashir Worf o'brien or quirk and hanak i believe that guy's name is um yes let's talk let's talk about Worf, uh, uh quark and i think it's pronounced hanak yeah hanak okay sure um uh, the karema um the karema tradesman yep i would just say one last thing about the um about the cisco kira relationship which is that again there's so much emphasis here in ds9 on personal relationships that uh i can't i feel that on the enterprise for example people's personal relationships on the enterprise of next generation people's personal relationships are so muted and professional relationships take so much precedence and the same is largely true even on Voyager where they don't know how long they will be in the Delta Quadrant. You know, Janeway has to reluctantly concede that people are going to end up pairing off. Um, and here it's not just that it's okay to be friends. It's that it, uh, it's considered a problem that Cisco and Kira are not personal friends outside of work. Yeah. That, that, that's a good point, yeah. And there are a lot of romances going on on, on DS9. And, and of course, there's also Dax, who is this very non-judgmental figure who is kind of encouraging people's dating. And Dax and Kira gossiping about dating each morning when they go down to ops. You know, their first uh, 10 minutes of conversation, I think somebody says, is always talking about who is dating whom on the station. And that I can't imagine that happening on on Picard's Enterprise, for example. So I really enjoyed the scenes between um, Quark and Hennock. Um and I thought the acting Armin Shimmerman's acting in this was marvelous. Um, I mean, I do think his acting is beautiful throughout this series, and. Um, I like the kind of, I think somebody once described this, the Quark scenes as the Merchant of Venice in, in space. Mm-hmm. That kind of um, Quark's um, character arc is one of the most interesting. And the moments of kind of sympathy and empathy that we feel for Quark are, you know, what some of the more hard fought moments because he is such a materialist and a cynic, of course. And I felt that this this episode gave us a strong sense of what psychologically motivates the Ferengis in their pursuit of trade, that it's not all about simply making Latinum. It's not about the Latinum itself. It's about the process, the hunt, the risk, and that kind of excitement came over very clearly in the interactions with Hennock. I think it's also, I'm, I'm troubled by the fact that the Federation, despite, um, despite the things that happen at the end of, I think season two is when um, Odo um, kills the, 
um, the changeling. Yep, end of season, and end of season he, three, actually, yeah, when he kills the... End uh, of season three, yeah. yes. End of the previous season when he kills the changeling and his last words, the changeling's last words to Odo are, it's too late, we're everywhere. I felt that that really, at, at the end of that season, it really raised the stakes about the level of danger and I think that one of the failures in Deep Space Nine in general and in season four in particular is that they didn't really, um, that, that that warning of the changelings was not really justified, that we we don't really get a very strong sense of the changelings now having il- infiltrated everything. Yeah. I would have liked the, the sense of peril to have ratcheted way up after that episode, which I thought was a fantastic episode and a really chilling ending to the season. And instead, the Federation seems so unworried that they're even trading with Dominion partners against the Dominion's wishes. That they're going in there just to make, just to what, I mean, not to make Latinum, that's Quark's motivation, but just to create some business ties. Yeah. I mean, I understand that this is a sort of, even though the Federation don't have money, um, and I think the economics in DS9 is also very problematic, but even though they don't have money, I can see how free trade goes along with a set of liberal humanist, we could even say enlightenment values, which the Federation embodies or largely embodies with the exception of things like Section 31. Um, but at the same time, it seems like a, a, an extraordinarily rash thing to do. I think that the um, you're absolutely right. There's two ways you can look at it. You can look at it as, in the terms of it being a TV show, the writer's room is sitting there saying, well, we can't just not go to the Gamma Quadrant. It's like the only place mm, that we have yeah. to go to. <laughs> um, and uh, But on an internal story logic it makes absolutely zero sense that the Federation continues to go into the wormhole after the Dominion told them that's the one thing that they're not allowed to do. They Once mm-hmm. they get over there, it doesn't make any sense to me that the Dominion doesn't have a presence on the other side of the wormhole. You, you'd think mm-hmm. that they would, yeah. they would lock the door, basically, by putting their version of a Deep Space Nine station on their side of the wormhole. Um, yes, yes. And then the other thing about it is just that if, if you want to look at the... the the theme of this it seems to be you could interpret the show saying that the idealism of the federation has created this naivete where they do not understand what they're dealing with and that they continue to push against someone who is not going to put up with this and it's going to come to a head in a couple seasons um Mm, but mm. do do you think that the federation's idealism of thinking everyone is kind of like us we should just go explore places because exploring and learning is good. Uh, do you think that's ultimately the downfall here? Do you think it's intentional or do you think it's just a, the show needs to go to the Gamma Quadrant to go on an adventure? I don't know. I prefer the idea that it's intentional Yeah. because, I, um, you know, in a sense, it's like a religion for me. I do a lot of cognitive dissonance <laughs> and I want to justify things that would otherwise not make sense. Um. I mean, Star Trek is like a religion for me in that sense. Um, 
So I prefer your explanation. I'm going to go with your explanation. I, I think it works better. It's certainly a better way to look at it. I don't know if they intended, but I, I do think that it, I, I feel it also has sort of modern tie-ins there where it's the kind of belief that you're doing the right thing and that this is a good idea is going to work out for you in the long run. And it just, it comes to a head uh, with the Dominion. Uh, you know, it's the, it's the clash of liberalism against the fascism of the Dominion. And mm-hmm. it's just that the liberalism doesn't really understand that there are people out there who think like fascists. And, um, you know, as you say, them going through, they're dealing directly with a member race of the Dominion here. And to me, I think that I think they're called the Karema or something like that. The Karema are the Karema. The, the Karema, Karema yes. don't make a lot of sense to me because. If they're subjugated members of the Dominion, they should have more of a fear of the Dominion. And they're also portrayed as not quite being Ferengi-like in their seeking of profit. So they don't they don't have, to me, a good driving reason to be risking all of this. Mm. And it, I mean, Hanuk becomes more Ferengi-like, of course, by the end. Yes, through Quark's um, influence. You know, he yeah. is through Quark, yes. But they, it doesn't seem to be... Do you think he's lying? Or To me, it doesn't seem like that's an innate part of the species. So the risk-taking that they're undertaking here by talking to the Federation doesn't make a lot of sense to me because their whole their whole view on trading is kind of funny. It's just like we set a fair price and we sell it and we just kind of exist in this happy free market type world. Uh, and the Ferengi shake them out of this. And you could say that the Ferengi outtake is actually a worse, more negative outlook on economics than the Karema have at this point. It would be healthier if the universe had a Karema trade agreement. I think a Karema trade agreement would be impossible. Yeah. I mean, I don't know much about economics. I really don't want to get into it too much. But um, I feel one of the weaknesses in Trek is the kind of lack of capitalism. I think there's one episode where um, Nog and Jake are talking. And um, Jake wants to... I can't remember what it is that Jake wants to do, actually but he needs money for it. And um, he's talking to Nog and Nog disapproves. And Jake says, well, can't you lend me some latinum? And Nog says, you know, more fool you for not having any latinum to begin with. Yes. I'm sorry that I can't remember exactly which episode that that is, but I agree with Nog there. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's-, um, it's a very lovely idea that we could do without money and just have a sort of surplus. Um, but I can't see how that would work um, psychologically or socially. Um, I just can't envisage that working. I mean, the, the pro- um, yeah, the, the problem with the Ferengi is that they're, the sort of easy criticism of the, is that they're capitalists gone mad. They aren't really capitalists. And this episode uh, hones in on that a little bit. It's They're not purely... It has nothing to do with ownership. I think there's only a handful of episodes where they reference like labor wages and stuff like that. Uh, it's It's more... They're more mercantile. They're into the sort of wheeling and dealing aspect of trade. It, they're kind of... Uh- Oh, no, but there's all this stuff with um, Rom when Rom organizes Qua- the workers in Quark's bar into a union. That's later, yes. But to, to this point, to this point to- in the series, the Ferengi have not really... They they do eventually start going into that, but they, they don't do that at this point. They're, they're more of a uh, wheeling and dealing, as they say here. They're in it for the thrill of the deal. Um, and the the thing about it is that 
you run in, at this point in the series, you run into this weird schism where the Ferengi exist in this non-currencyed Federation world. And you wonder how that actually works. Like how are Federation people paying for drinks at Quark's bar? How, how, is, right. how is any of this arrangement working out for Quark? And you're right that they do get more into a sort of um, the union is a good example, Rom's union, but they, they don't do that here. And I think that the, the way that this storyline works out is I actually don't think it's all that favorable to Quark. I don't, I don't really know what the point of this story is besides fleshing out Quark a little bit, but he doesn't come across as he comes across as sensible, but it just doesn't, it doesn't feel like the plot really needed to happen. It felt like they just kind of stuck this on at the end. And I don't really feel it pushed Quark anywhere interesting that I felt he needed to go. The Karema don't make a lot of sense to me. The torpedo allows for a little bit of humor every now and then, but um, I was a little let down I, by the storyline. Hmm. Yeah, I actually love the um, I love the torpedo scenes, and I thought Quark was just delightful in this episode. Incre- Even yeah. though the storyline dialogue are a little weak, but I felt that Quark's character and also Shimmerman's acting were both a delight um, in this in this particular episode. Um, I mean, the thing that bothers me more about the Ferengi is that supposedly their main aim is maximizing profit. Um, and yet they keep their women literally naked in the kitchen. And, um, like some kind of, um, theocratic society. Um, so uh, that doesn't make economic sense to me. Uh, Half, half of their workforce is economically unproductive. Right. And that's the, they are confusingly they're they're basically drawn to bring out the ugliest sides of humanity and they end up with a culture that doesn't make a lot of sense when you especially for a culture that we'd run into so frequently they don't they don't really feel like they could exist as a real uh, society one of the things that ds9 has done really well is that they fleshed out the cultures a bit and I, you can see how the cardassians exist as a society you can mm, see how mm, this sort yes. of fascist like big brother state would actually function and all the characters in it feel realistic ferengi society feels like a joke the entire time it's it's not a real thing that could actually be productive or end up going anywhere hmm. yeah maybe i mean i think it it makes for some very interesting conundrums i particularly loved um uh, Leto and Rom's marriage. Yep. Um, that there's a wonderful parallel there. There's a kind of reverse parallel, um, which is Rom trying to behave like the kind of macho Ferengi male that he thinks he should be, that other people have convinced him he should be, but which is not really in his nature. And that almost fucking up their relationship. I oh sorry, am I allowed to say yeah. the effort? Yeah, you can drop okay. drop as many fucks as you want. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, I will may let fly some fucks then. Um, <laughs> that I thought that was a wonderful episode, and it was also showed that it was not specifically about the nakedness because um, Lita is. Um, doesn't want to have to be naked at her own wedding. Um, she wants to be dressed. And on um, that's, that's her kind of feminist statement, whereas when uh, in a later episode, Luxana Troy is about to marry this very conservative dude, 
um, again, I don't remember which episode this is. That's a lot. Of, that's a lot of episodes. I <laughs> think that's even on TNG. Well, well, yeah. I mean, Roxana Troy is always trying to get um, is always trying to get together with one or other person, um, and I'm afraid my friends o- often tell me that uh, she reminds them of me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping for more flashing comparison, but you know. Um, <laughs> um, but on that particular episode of DS9, Luaxana is engaged to this um, engaged to this guy who is a real stick in the mud, and she feels it's her last sort of chance at happiness and love, so she's willing to go along with it, even though his he's incredibly conservative, narrow-minded. Um, has absolutely no sense of humor, no sense of fun, and is very rigid about everything. And he wants her to get married according to his tradition, which involves wearing some elaborate wedding dress. And she, of course, wants to go naked at her wedding because that's the um, that's the Betazoid way. And so she she turns up at her wedding completely naked. Once she's decided that she can't, she can't be with this guy if he is such a conservative asshole, she -hmm. turns up at the wedding completely naked. And of course, he is totally shocked and she is uh, saved by that from a relationship with him. So there's a lovely reverse parallel there between later wanting to uh, be dressed for her own wedding and Waxana Troy wanting to be naked for her wedding. Yeah. Freedom of choice. Uh, yes. for for those yeah. characters yeah, yeah it's a it, it, it the show frequently is pushing against um because the societies are all different from each other you'll have characters who have different opinions just to push against those societies uh so there'll <laughs> there'll be a great sort of mixing of ideas and um, and stuff about what people want to do for their weddings in your example if they want to go dressed or or not um yeah, I, one of one of the strengths there is that the the culture building of DS Nine has been pretty exceptional to that point, and it's just it it, it feels very much like TNG ish when you bring in a race like the Karema, who feel very flimsy uh, to mm, me. And mm. Cromwell's performance here is great. Shimmerman and Cromwell do, both do a fantastic job uh, with what they're given. It's just I, it, it's a lot of. The it's, eyes it's again, on Quark, his eyes. Yeah, he's very good. It's, yeah. The, 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 the problem really is just that I think my, my criticism extends to all of the stories. Uh, it's just that they don't have enough time to get across what they're trying to say here. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. know, really know what Quark is trying to say. He's trying to say that wheeling and dealing is good. Maybe you should take some risks. If that's the takeaway, you know, life is better if you take a few risks and you don't go yes. all buttoned up. That, that's, that's, that's the takeaway, I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, there's no excitement without without risk. Yes. Um, and you know you don't value something unless you have taken risks to get it. Um, yeah. And I can I can see the validity of that completely. And I also love the way he just pulled out the the thing, yeah. the, <laughs> um, the firing device. Although I'm surprised I, the I'm surprised the Gem Hadar buy torpedoes. That seems that seems a little bit crazy to me. You think that you think they'd I don't know. That just seems odd that they buy them from a race. I guess that makes sense within the context of the Dominion. It just felt a Why little not? bit funny. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it made perfect sense to me because the Kremer, they're subject people. Um, yeah. Why don't they? Why 
well, they obviously do have a monetary system in the Delta Quadrant, but I, I mean the Gamma Quadrant. But if we get into economics, um, I think it's going to make my head hurt. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a so, but I guess. I have, the- have enough trouble with earth economics (laughs) (laughs) the the dominion apparently will conquer you but they'll still pay you for your goods which is an interesting uh thing they do have a very the dominion are interesting and they'll show this more in uh the later seasons but the dominion are not a purely brute force conquering thing they are there at the back end they are sort of the the very incredibly authoritarian state that's taking control but they do have they sign a lot of agreements with their subjugated mm-hmm. races. Like yes, there's a lot of yes. paperwork going between people, yeah. which is funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they have overemployment right, um, exactly. among changelings. And, <laughs> the, uh, the numbers are going up 4.2%. Yes. Yes. Um, Should we move on to Dax? And, oh, yes. Great minds. Sure. Well, do you want to do Dax and Bashir or Warfare? I think Warfare yes. O'Brien is a little bit meatier, but if you want to get Dax out of the way first, that might make sense. I'd like to do Dax and Bashir. Sure, go ahead. Um, so I seem to be the only person ever to have viewed the franchise and not have found uh, Bashir creepy. You didn't find him creepy? I didn't, no. Okay. Um, I mean, I think that the closest their relationship gets to being creepy is in the Dax episode. I think that episode is called Dax, where she is... Um, uh, where Dax, not Jadzia, but Dax, the symbiont is accused of murder yes that is dax in season one and i don't remember on which planet but it um it turns out that uh, um people come to abduct jadzia to abduct dax to to take dax back to stand trial on this planet and um julian has just been flirting with dax beforehand at quarks and dax um tells him uh, and he says, shall we go back to my quarters or something really corny, as he always does? And Dax says, no, I'm going back to um, to bed now. And he says, can I walk you to your quarters or something? She says, that's not necessary. And he's sitting there and he says, she didn't explicitly tell me I was forbidden yeah. to follow her back to her quarters. <laughs> and so he walks along after her, keeping his distance. And as a result, he's able to intercept, um, or he's he at least detects. He doesn't intercept, but he witnesses her being abducted. And um, I feel as though I can see how that might seem creepy if you didn't know who Bashir was, mm-hmm. and you don't have faith in his trustworthiness as a person. Um, that would be very creepy if a stranger did that. Or very, or someone who you have just a brief acquaintance with, but I felt as if even then we had enough of a sense that Bashir is no rapist, um, and probably knows where her quarters are anyway, because you know they're they're officers on a on a military station. Um, I think that um, I I didn't find it creepy. Um, Bash- yeah. Well, Bashir, uh, yeah, I, I Bashir is interesting. I feel that there is a there's a modernization of his perspective that kind of makes sense on one hand, kind of doesn't. I, I agree with you. In my opinion, Bashir is 
Bashir is the most TNG-ish of the, the characters on the show at this point, especially early in his first couple seasons. He is the character who is the sort of um, do-gooder, optimist, going to go on and take the bull by the horns character who is fits very much into the TNG mold of a hard worker, blah, blah, blah. He's kind of pure of heart and he doesn't really have any compromising issues. Um, they wrote him that way, sort of overly overly flirty and overly sex driven and Mm -hmm. i think it was really just to give him a character at that point like Mm. they didn't know what to do with him and his Mm. episodes that focus on him to that point are terrible and the the yeah i i guess i disagree i thought he was they wrote him as flirty and um i mean all of his interactions are flirtations basically including i mean especially the ones with men um you know, his his interactions, these kind of mildly homoerotic interactions that he has with Miles and in particular with Garrick. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so he comes across to me like an Argentine man. Um, you know, this would be sort of norm for, uh, I'm Argentine, and this would be much more of a norm in, in Argentine culture. Yeah, I think the cliche over here would be Italian. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like most cliches, there's a lot of truth in it. And I find it sort of, um, I find it really harmless and fun. And I also enjoy his sort of emotional permeability, his ability to get enthused by, um, by people. I find that actually very relatable and lovable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I... I think that is when I when I say the modernization thing, I think he's the criticism now has come around to or has turned into more of a inappropriateness. And I, I would agree with you that I I get I get a little tired early on of him just because of the one note nature of his personality is being that way. He he's not given a lot to work with. And well, I don't think he's particularly offensive because he fits into that TNG mold where you're saying you're aware he's not a rapist. It's clear this is not a guy who's going to do anything about this. It comes across a little bit one note. Right, and, and Dax would know that too. I mean, if Dax turned around and saw him following her, she'd just be like, oh, Julian, come off it. Right. You know, she wouldn't be afraid, would she? No. Uh, for lots of reasons. I mean, for one thing, I think physically she could defend herself, um, frankly. But yep. also... Um, uh also you know she 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 knows him um he is he is not a, he's not a person who is going to be physically threatening right exactly and the, the i i do like the fact that they've molded him into something else here although i'll i'll say that there's a criticism of this episode and i'll ask your opinion about it mm-hmm. is that the episode somewhat undercuts jedzia and her relationship to him when she says when there's this sort of uh, dialogue going on about how she liked the chase and they think that Mm -hmm. it is a undercutting and it's the male perspective of the Star Trek writers room coming through there and I, I do think there is something to that argument there is the relationships on Star Trek are very young 20 year old men perspectives on relationships mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I was just wondering what your thoughts about that they they re- they turn Dax a little bit here and it doesn't stick they don't keep this going forward but it's a little bit of an an interesting realization that maybe she liked the chase and I was curious about what you thought about that right 
Um, you know, I feel that, that that ties in with some things that happen later with Esri. I think at one point Esri tells Julian that um, he w was Dax's second choice, that she was kind of considering getting together with him, and then she met and fell in love with Worf. And that didn't ring very true to me. I think that um, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I wasn't convinced by that kind of, that she actively enjoyed his, his sort of chasing of her. Um, but I think she also didn't hate it. It was just mildly annoying at times and sometimes amusing. Yeah, yeah. But I, get the... I don't feel she probably had strong feelings about it either way. I feel early on it's portrayed more as she is playing with Julian because it, she finds it funny that she can sort of manipulate yes, him that yes. way. And, and being an, a, a creature that's lived for eight lifetimes or whatever, she has a perspective on she's fully of, aware of what's going on and she's just having mm -hmm. kind of having a little bit of fun with him. Yeah, exactly. I felt that too. And, and not in any cruel way because he also realizes that that's what she's doing. You know, it's an, a kind of mutually agreed upon game. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people have, uh, have said that the, the fantasy that Julian confesses to here when they're in the turbo lift, um, it's a turbo lift, right? Where they're sealed. Um, oh, is it? I, I, thought it was just, I thought it was just some kind of safe room. It might be a turbo or lift, yeah. A, maybe a safe room, yeah. But the little room that they're sealed in where they're running out of air. And he says that he had this fantasy that this would happen to them alone on a shuttle. And of course, he would save the day um, and receive her eternal gratitude. And a lot of people thought that was, uh, felt that was creepy. Mm -hmm. in, um, or many people have commented that they felt that was creepy. But I, um, I thought that was just a, a very... Uh, standard and kind of understandable fantasy yeah. Um, to have. And I thought it was sort of sweet that he um, related it. You know why I think it's creepy? It's it, mm -hmm. it comes across as creepy, I think, because the they they are at threat of dying. Like that is ostensibly mm -hmm. what's happening. Mm -hmm. They're in a very mm -hmm. life or death thing. And he is revealing his innermost thoughts at this point because he believes he might die. The, the problem mm. is the pacing of the episode. He, he admits to it so quickly that it feels like he was just waiting for a moment to be locked in a room with her to tell her about this. And it doesn't come across as they've spent 40 minutes together slowly realizing that they're dying. And right at, before they draw their last breath, he admits this to her and then they're saved. That would be the other episode mm. that you do this. In. Right. And right. Yeah. So it's a little it's a little glib. Right. It, it should come a little later. And we have to sort of suspend our disbelief about the amount of time they're in there versus the amount of screen time. Right. That we see. Yes, that, that's that's exactly right. That would be the only reason that I would have a problem with it. I mean. And the the Dax thing is, I don't I don't feel it's undercutting. I don't feel it's weird for Dax to be saying that it, it doesn't quite jive with the early um, portrayal of it, in my opinion. And I feel Dax Dax is never written particularly well because I don't feel like Dax reacts to situations like this as someone who has lived eight lifetimes and has eight lifetimes worth of experience to deal with stuff. Um, mm. I I mean I think. I, I do feel that, actually. I mean, here she was a little... There was something slightly kind of childish about her response, mm -hmm. which I think could have been more knowing, more arch, more kind of jokey and fun. 
um, which is how she normally responds to things, which I think is a very mature way of responding. And there's, it feels more immature at this moment. Um, and it feels, um, I, when I was watching this episode, I was remembering an episode of Voyager with uh, Tom Paris, who I do think is the most annoying character in all of the Trek franchises. <laughs> <laughs> if there were one character I could just get rid of, it would be this all-American kind of... Um, blonde-haired, blue-eyed. Golden boy. Yeah, golden boy, dude. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being blonde-haired, blue-eyed, American or that's, whatever. That's, that's me. That's, that's, you're, descri- <laughs> you're describing me. <laughs> Sounds lovely. Um, I, uh, but... Um, he's so wholesome, you know, he's too wholesome. And, um, but you remember the episode when he is, he and Belana, um, I think their shuttlecraft explodes. Of course, my poor memory, I don't remember what this episode is called, but their shuttlecraft explodes and they end up in their spacesuits, um, floating in space. Right, yep alone and the air is running out in their suits and of course one of them get they up the stakes by giving one of them a leak in their suits so they have to share share their air and Belana tells Tom that she loves him and then the next day um uh, well I think for a few days she completely avoids him after this confession and then finally Tom manages to get get her alone in a turbo lift and and she immediately says you should just forget what i said when our air was running out mm-hmm. and um he says you didn't mean it then she says oh yes i meant it but you don't have to be she doesn't put it like this but the idea is you don't have to be bound by something um someone said to you at the moment when they thought you were both dying yes you know how you responded to that. Uh, I'm not. I'm not going to hold you to that because of the specifics of that situation. Um, that was a. I think that gave a kind of interesting take on this sort of. On this sort of romantic situation, let's say. Yeah, it's a. Um, um, it's in in the judicial system. It's a an example of the jury being told to disregard what someone has just said. <laughs> kind of, it's like right, you, you're right. not supposed to pay attention to this thing because it wasn't supposed to be said. So just kind of ignore that uh, as best you can, which is maybe of the course. And how, and of course, you cannot disregard. Right? How can yeah, you possibly disregard. Um, <laughs> you delete that file, unfortunately, uh, or the log. Yes, yes. I think also there's a little bit of unintentional because I think Terry Farrell didn't decide until much later to leave the series. Um, but there's a little bit of kind of foreshadowing of the um, Esri and Bashir relationship um, because that little uh, door is just left ajar for a future relationship between Bashir and Jadzia. Um, and I think that might be part of what's going on there with Jadzia's response that the writers didn't want to eliminate that possibility. Yeah. In case later they wanted to create that romance. And of course, in the end, they they do kind of create a romance between Bashir and Dax. Yes. Yeah. I, I, which some people also find very troubling. Yeah. <laughs> I, I find the, the concept of Dax, I find a little bit troubling, but I've, I've ranted about that to the point where people are now complaining, so I'm not going to go into it. But I think that the um, the... 
I, I agree that it's probably a writer decision to keep their options open. Um, you need to do mm-hmm. this too. Just further down the line, who knows what's going to happen? Let's keep things available between these two. I don't really have a problem with that. I think that those two are actually very comfortable actors with each other at this point, and mm, their scenes yeah. generally work with each other. Uh, they are yeah, they have a lot of chemistry. They do, yeah. And, the actors yeah. and uh, uh, Siddig, the actor who plays um, Bashir, has come a long way in just his own comfort level with the role. I think he he feels much more natural on the station and in his scenes at this mm. point, and mm. the uh, the. One, one criticism of the storyline for these two is that uh, the original concept of this episode was that the Defiant would crash on a planet and go into its oceans. And so it was actually a submarine episode. Mm, yes. So the yes. the danger, uh, this scene would have played out exactly the same, except the danger was that water had breached the hull. So instead of gas, there was right. water chasing after them. Mm-hmm. And mm. I will say that it being gas versus not being water gas does not feel the same level of terror that water does i think as a human being like watching water pouring in at you is much more terrifying than the gas and i think that the the setup of the episode actually suffers when they changed it to a gas danger as opposed to a water danger um, yes ab- absolutely um i mean we're so used to seeing people rushing out of gas fill- filled rooms or rushing back into gas filled rooms to rescue people that I've got quite blasé about poisonous gases. Right. I think at one point she says it's fluorine, or he describes it as fluorine gas. So it's pretty nasty stuff. But she just has a little slight frog in her throat. Yes. <laughs> she seems fine. <laughs> just gonna... And, you know, it's a nice opportunity to do a little cuddling. Yeah. We... Um, so... <laughs> um, I don't... Guilt, guilt-free snuggles. So I can't... Uh, yeah, it lacks... Um, there's a lack of a sense of urgency, which I think some other moments in the episode do have. Um, I love the, um, uh, I actually love the, like, I enjoyed the kind of fight scenes, the outdoor scenes when we were watching The Defiant. Um, the scene where The Defiant is being repeatedly hit and they're waiting to see whether their torpedo will actually target the Jem'Hadar ship or turn back and um, target The Defiant itself. I think that's lovely. Uh, but these scenes actually on board didn't give me the same sense of peril. Yes. Um, and I think that's its greatest failing as a disaster episode. I think if you're doing a disaster episode, you really need to get this sense of peril across. And I feel that uh, TNG's disaster episode did that really well. Uh, this is a DS9 version of disaster, I would argue, where instead of in the TNG episode, the characters are paired off and they all have a technical problem they need to solve. They all like Riker right. and Data have to go uh, turn off the electricity. Uh, Picard has to get out of the shuttlecraft. Jordy and Beverly have to get rid of those radioactive barrels. Um, and that's a very TNG story that these characters, the right. characters are archetype blank slates and we're going to put them into something that technically needs to be solved. But DS9 doesn't do that. It does. Here's a problem. We've paired off all the characters. Now the characters are going to share a scene with each other. and Right. It's about exploring their personal relationships, whereas in the Enterprise, it's this well-honed technical, technical team. Right. And, and personal relationships are really secondary. Um, you know, in, in, in DS9, people are all exploring their friendships and even their love affairs and 
um, you know, the ca- the captain's son is trying to matchmake him, whereas Picard has the one relationship with a flute playing. Um, Key- she plays keyboards. Uh, woman. Yeah, she plays keyboards um, in their band. She plays yeah. keyboards, and he plays a kind of recorder type instrument. <laughs> yeah. Um, which he's learned in an alternative universe when he was on that planet. Uh, where the alternative Picard grew old. Yep, in her life. Uh, and he briefly has a girlfriend, the this female officer who plays keyboards while he plays flute. And um, she's sent on one single mission where she's endangered, and he decides that he has to break it off because he's too emotionally uh, overwrought by um, by her being in danger. Yes, yep. That stops him from being able to focus on his job. And, you know, there are so many frustrating, um, frustrating and frustrated relationships in TNG. Uh, There are, um, um, there's Picard and Beverly. And there's at one point Troy and Worf in this alternative timeline. Um, And of course, there's Troy and Riker, who are sort of on a break, I guess we could describe it. But she is like hanging on, waiting to see what happens. Um, And Beverly is also kind of hanging on, waiting to see what happens. Um, And that, that doesn't happen in Deep Space Nine. And I'm really happy it doesn't happen. It feels more psychologically healthy and i think it's not conceivable within the world of ds9 people seem to just embark on the relationships that they want to have without worrying about the professional or other implications or not worrying so much that it stops them from seeking love yeah there's a um Cisco with Cassidy has a professional sort of responsibility, but it doesn't ultimately hold up uh, his relationship with her. He's concerned about her being on right. the ship and like, what Starfleet means to be, uh, you know, to be involved with Starfleet and stuff like that. But they, they do pursue each other's relationships um, freely in a way that TNG didn't. Yes. I mean, at one point, I think she's breaking regulations um, and he needs to... There's there's a little bit of a conflict between his professional duties to reprimand her and his personal relationship with her, but still, there's never a, uh, the thought that therefore they can't have a personal relationship. Right. Yep. Um, do we want and, to? And you know, Kira is. All... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry. So, let's sorry, move ahead. on to. Oh yeah. Go, Warf and go o- ahead. Warf and O'Brien. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the the action-packed uh, episode segment that is <laughs> Warf and O'Brien. Which is, to me, it, I'm glad we save it to the to the last because to me it is the, uh, it's just the alpha example of why a lot of the storylines here to me feel incomplete. Which is because there is no narrative drive to this segment of what's going on here. It's just Worf has difficulty telling his um, subordinates what to do. O'Brien tells him how to fix that. Worf immediately changes how he deals with the subordinates and everything works out. There's no, there's very little conflict in this thing for Worf. It's, it's ostensibly a learning experience for Worf, but it's, he doesn't have a moment of pushing against change. He is just him. And then he's told to change. He immediately changes and everything works out. Okay. For him. 
Right. I mean, that might also have to do with the short, the brevity of each of these little vignettes. I think uh, there's an episode of Voyager in which this whole scenario is fleshed out much more in much more depth. Uh, when um, Tuvac is training some of the Bajorans who are on board uh, Voyager, um, who the former Maquis crew members. Um, I think there's a Bolian and um, a Bajoran, a Bajoran woman, um, and I can't. A couple of others, um, a couple of other crew members who are recalcitrant and uh, underachievers and who just can't get with the program on the ship. Yep. And um, uh, Tuvac is is trying to appeal to them, is, has created this, it's about pedagogy, basically, that Tuvac has created this program with great logic and care on his part to try to rehabilitate them or try to improve their performance, and they just respond really badly. And in the end, he has to discover a better way of appealing to their psychology. Yes. And that's really tough for him as a Vulcan. Um, very tough. And I think we are expected to read the same kind of psychology into this, that there are a lot of things that are very tough for Worf, um, both as a Klingon and also as a kind of... Um, Worf, is a, um, Worf is a Klingon who grew up with humans, and he seems to be a teetotaler. He's always drinking his prune juice instead of blood wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's also the only Klingon in Starfleet. So he has this somewhat embattled relationship with his identity as a Klingon. Rather like, um, I feel there are parallels between him and some of the kind of hyphenated Americans um, who are really, really concerned about losing their parents' culture. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm thinking particularly of Indian Americans because that's the group that I know um, uh, because I'm half Indian. Uh, but, you know, this happens in, in many other cases as well. That Worf is also in this position and he's very, uh, he's kind of both wanting to authentically connect with that culture and also to a certain degree play acting it. Trying to put, trying to make himself the perfect Klingon warrior. So I think we're we're not really given enough in the episode to come to this conclusion. But it's the way that I'm watching the episode is with that in mind. Um, but it it's not well illustrated. Well, we don't get a sense of this being difficult for him, and it should be difficult. Yeah, I, I also, almost he get... has no sense of humor, which is a real <laughs> handicap for him. <laughs> That's the. I mean, the the thing is that he, he is so the the usual thing is that Worf is usually battling against his Klingon heritage, and here they've actually changed it where he is a fish out of water again. Except not in terms of Klingon; he's in terms of being a commanding officer who. Uh, because he's made a switch from his yellow uniform to his red, he's now in charge of people and he gets to order people around. Um, well, he's always been in charge of people, but he's in a more streamlined executive command position. And that seems to be the thing here. He's kind of learning how to be a good officer and maybe not everyone can bend to his rigid 
understanding of what the rules are. He has that opening scene, which ties in nicely about he's not happy with the performance reviews. Um, and then they, they bring it into he's dealing with engineers who are not uh, Starfleet officers, apparently. They're just engineers who work on the ship. And I was he quite has to- interested in, in the fact they're not Starfleet. I mean, there does do seem to be an awful lot of people at, uh, who are involved in kind of military organizations and who are also on the ship who are not Starfleet. Well, I think you know, they- there's Quark, who's very much not, and the engineers, and, and um, there's also Kira, who sort of is, both is and isn't. Well, I'd say that they are. That they are Starfleet, but they're not officers. So they don't have rank the way that the other characters do. They're like O'Brien. O'Brien doesn't have a rank. He can't uh, order anybody around, uh, but he is a member of Starfleet. Mm-hmm. So, right. They it's haven't more been like, to Starfleet Academy. That's what O'Brien says, actually. He doesn't say they're not Starfleet. He says he, right. they haven't been to the Academy. Yes, and so going to the mm-hmm. Academy is a prerequisite to get rank in Starfleet. Um, and then... So these guys just kind of signed up as something to do, I suppose. Uh, they don't have any loftier goals or ambition than to be ordered around by this guy wearing makeup uh, who comes into their section and tells them what to do. Um, it's they're, a, it's they're a nerds, new... you know. I mean, right. they're, they're geeks. <laughs> geeks, not nerds. Technically, and, they're geeks. And this guy, uh, Worf, is coming in and bullying them. And they don't appreciate it, mm-hmm. but they do get the job done. But I, I just think it's it's an unsatisfying little story. You can you can tell this story over the course of an episode, but as a little vignette, it is just remarkably uh, dull. I think it doesn't show you anything about Worf. It doesn't. It is a little bit heartwarming. Um, you know, I really like the engineers, um, and I I think that. Um, there are a lot of very heroic characters in the on on both on the Voyager ship and um, and in TNG, um, and there are a lot of sort of everyman figures uh, in the in the DS Nine um, franchise. Um, so I think um, I I like it, and it it does help later when we. Um, when we're on the planet when Munius is dying. Now, of course, I don't remember exactly which episode that was, but you remember Munius is dying in one of the future episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to believe in, have empathy for him as a character and believe in O'Brien's relationship with him. Right. Um, and O'Brien's affection for him. And I, this does um, do a little bit of nice paving of the way for that. I like... Uh, one thing I do like about the way they draw, started to draw O'Brien is that O'Brien is kind of a, a the blowhard who will tell you story, or like old war stories and no one cares about it, which I think is a funny <laughs> character beat for him. He has that thing about, well, Ensign, last time Commander Sisko got us out of much worse of a, a situation than this. And they go, I know, Chief, you told me 500 times already. I, I like that characterization. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's very, he's, it's a very lovable character, the O'Brien character. Um and the, the sort of put upon every man. I mean, he does suffer a ridiculous amount in DS9. And I actually feel it's too much. We had so many episodes where he is, <coughs> um, you know, he has this evil spirit takes over Keiko's body. Um, he has the episode in which he is uh, in this kind of virtual prison cell and he feels like he's gone through 
many, I think, 20 years or something in the prison cell, and he ends up... Um, he uh, how does he ends up killing the other prisoner? But I can't remember exactly what way, um, because of these memories that have been implanted in him by this dreadful penal system. Um, you know, he has. There are so many um, moments of O'Brien suffering. Yeah, that each time there's a new episode like that, I feel don't do this to me again. Yeah. I can't take any more O'Brien suffering. Make someone else suffer instead. He's a, he's a man yeah. of steel will. He is just un, unbreakable, despite everything that the show will throw he's, at yes, uh, poor Chief O'Brien. A, yes, it's a Job. He's a Job character. Yeah, yeah, he is, yeah. Um, Worf is not. Worf is continuing his little uh, breakdown into DS9 uh, systems. All the previous Worf episodes have had to deal with Worf fitting into the new system, and this continues that, except it's in a slightly different way, where he's getting used to being uh, the commanding, I think he's the XO or the Defiant at this point, and that's why they're making this distinction. Um, but their mm-hmm. their solution is fine. I don't mind anything about that. It's just it, the their storyline is a part of the larger problem I have with it. Um, with that said, we're going to take a break. We're going to play an audio clip. And Iona and myself are going to come back. We're going to give our final thoughts about the episode, and then we'll give it a rating, read some patron thoughts, and then we will call it a day. Excuse me, sir. Here's the repair schedule we drew up for the Defiant. With your approval, we thought we'd start by tearing out the ODN lines. They're shot. It'd be easier to get to the manifolds that way. And then we figured Proceed at your own discretion, Mr. Stevens. Thank you, sir. How long will the repairs take? 16 hours? Oh, you can do it in 12. 12? Sure. No problem. See? You can give him a little slack, but you can't take your hands off the reins. All right, everybody. So, we are here with our uh, final thought segment for Starship Down, which is uh, probably, I'd assume this came out after Black Hawk Down. Maybe it didn't, actually. It might have actually come out first. Um, but I don't know typically what we do here is we read, uh, patron comments, people who support the show on Patreon get to leave mm-hmm. their thoughts and we'll read them out loud and then kind of react to them. Um, mm-hmm. what we have here, here it is. Sorry, I forgot to highlight these. So we are looking for starship down, cut out all this silence, starship down. Stephen Cobb says David Mack was one of the writers of this episode and a Star Trek book author. He's written some really, really good post nemesis books that feature DS nine characters. Uh, Iona, do you read any of the Star Trek books? Are you familiar with any of them? I haven't. Um, I haven't read them. I in a uh, in an ideal universe, I would like to also read them all. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> I actually don't like. I yeah. I actually I don't like um, tie-in literature to shows like this. I, I have a real. I've tried to read a couple of them, and I don't like them particularly. And I don't know what it is, whether it's my sense of canon uh, being ruined. I don't consider them to be real Star Trek episodes, so I don't want to be watered down with them on some level. But uh, I have a hard time getting through uh, those kind of books, um, even though I've tried. uh, Kyle Barrett says, I'll leave the examination of the actual episode down to you professionals. But I will say that the title Starship Down is perfect. Professionals. I like that. It's perfect (laughs) and wonderfully captures the pulpy submarine thriller vibe that the episode is emanating. What did you think about that? Did you 
if you want to talk a little bit more uh, about your thoughts about like the the submarine vibe and the disaster vibe, what what, did you, what was your takeaway mm. about from the episode in that? Mm. I feel there wasn't quite enough of a submarine vibe. Um, that that I I felt the submarine vibe didn't really come off. For that, I would have liked to have seen through the view screen rather than interference. I would have liked to have seen nothing. Like that episode of Voyager Night, where they're just passing through a completely empty area of space. Yeah. One of my favorite episodes, actually. And it felt too much like space as usual for the submarine vibe to really kick in for me. And I think that was a weakness. Also, I have to confess that when I hear that title, I can't help. I can't stop hearing the echoes of Watership Down. Oh sure, yeah. Which is quite quite irrelevant. Well, I, I think of uh, Black Hawk Down. That's the only thing. I think that came out after this, but I, I can't be sure. That's more that's more relevant, at least. Yes, right. So um, ship under attack. So and all that. Yes, <laughs> yes. Will Will Yates says Starship Down, good World War Two submarine piece in space. I thought the bookend on the Dax Bashir romance was a, a little ham fisted. I really liked seeing James Cromwell as an honest businessman juxtaposed against all of Ferengi society. I was a little disappointed that in the end, Quark's greed won out and brought him over to the dark side. The lower camera angles did add to the claustrophobia. I do the lower camera angle. They do a Dutch angle on Quark where the uh, ship is creaking is probably the most submarine shot that they have the entire time. Um, what did you think about Quark's greed winning out? I liked it. I, I, um, I'm, I'm rather pro Quark, I have to say. Yeah. I'm a skeptic about this post-capitalist society that they have, even though I love the idea of it. But it feels too much like communism to me, and communism is not a system compatible with human nature. Yep. Yeah, I mean, they they don't really delve into it. They're not particularly... It's one of those things that started off or as a... Humanoid nature, I should say. Yes. Humanoid nature. <laughs> <laughs> the changelings walk amongst us, remember. Um, yes, of course. Yeah. And the translation, of course, the Ferengi translation for humanoid is Ferengioid, <laughs> Ferenginoid, Cardassianoid, Bajoranoid, etc. It's that um, <laughs> it's whatever that original it's race only- in the chase was that like the race that we all came off of the very bland looking blank slate race that seeded the galaxy in TNG. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's yep. see here. Yep. Matthew Ross says, uh, Starship Down, this is compared to Balance of Terror. However, I feel this pales in comparison and lacks a sense of tension. The implosion on the ship, I feel, was not done correctly and looks better on Voyager. I think that the closest with Dax and Bashir, the closet with Dax and Bashir was a great friend zone that conveniently had full oxygen content. That said, I still think this was a good episode. Just to me, it felt like there was a lack of urgency. James Cromwell adds to the collection of multiple characters in Trek lore with another character playing here. I like that the bridge had to be abandoned and run from a smaller console in engineering. And Kira's trying to keep Cisco going with the stories and show a faith, although well-intentioned seemed flat to me, especially with the stilted Bajoran prayer. One thing for sure, the engineer should just shut up. Worf is trying to save their lives and make the icons look pretty. Uh, the fact Worf acts like he has never had subordinates before is odd. Maybe it's the real reason he's almost on every TNG away mission and gets his butt kicked. He's tired. But O'Brien, with the good old advice, is fine. The Ferengi cheat your way to success guide to the trade minister was ridiculous. And the fact that the Ferengi, the known cheats of the universe, are handling a trade of the Federation is equally nutty. But the attempt to take out the torpedo was fun to watch, and I did like Quark's taking a chance. But why would parts not be labeled? That's really odd. 
<laughs> um, mm, Christian mm. Park says, Starship Down, it's fun to be stuck on a cramped defiant, both with the pressure of the situation and the literal pressure of the gas giant around them. I like the various characters breaking off into their isolated sections and seeing how they interact. Kira and Cisco are the least interesting to me, but I like the others. Seeing Bashir and Dax interact shows just how far both of them have come along. Quirk pulling the plug on the torpedo has always made me laugh. Not amazing, but very solid. And then mm, we have... Mm. That's it. That's it for the comments. Thank you, patrons, very much for leaving your comments. Iona, at this point, we give our final thoughts, and then you give a rating. We have a rating scale here, a one to five. So one is a terrible episode, a five is an all-time classic, and there's gradients in between. So do you want to give your final thoughts about the episode as a whole, and then uh, just give me a rating on one to five? Um, yeah, so I think the episode as a standalone episode um, is unexciting, and wasn't as much fun to rewatch, to rewatch especially out of con- out of sequence, out of context, um, as I was imagining. And I feel as though um, I read way more into the episode than was actually shown, because I have because the episode is so focused on the character relationships, which I think in general are so well done on DS Nine, and I have so much affection for those characters. Even though my favorite character in the series, Odo, doesn't feature in this. He just has a tiny, tiny little role in the, in the end. He chuckles and raises one eyebrow at Quark. So um, one of his more kind of cliched moments. But um, still, I have, uh, I have this um, fondness for the episode. And I think that is based on how it works embedded within the franchise but as a kind of single episode it doesn't work so well so i'm gonna rate it with um i'm gonna rate it with a two sounds good i think that the i think that it's a it's the weakest episode of the fourth season so far uh, I do feel it comes across as a little bit of a fan fiction-y episode in that it was submitted by outside writers and then was rewritten by The Room and there was only so much to do. I think it, it lost a lot in its translation from a literal submarine episode to a gas episode. Uh, it, it felt to me it felt to me like it was a DS9-ification of a disaster episode, except I would have actually preferred less character stories i know that they wanted to sort of keep Mm, the pace mm. up but i would have cut two of the stories probably and maybe just stuck with two of them um i think that the kira and cisco storyline would have been one of them and i probably would have had quirk and hanak as the lighter storyline going alongside of those two yes and I yeah. think pairing those as a sort of A and B story would have really strengthened it. And I would have had the serious nature of Kira and Cisco, and then the goofy, corny nature of Quark and uh, his buddy. And doing that would have allowed them to focus a little bit more. And it wouldn't have come off as so empty and trite in the way that it does by the end of the episode. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's bad, but it certainly would have needed a few fixes. And it, it's not an episode that I think is something I would go back and really focus on or recommend someone watching a curated run through of the series would be. So I'm, I'm also going to give it a two. Mm-hmm. We came out of the same. This is a two for me is generally a, an episode that could have been okay if they had made a few changes to it. And I think that one fits nicely into that definition. Mm. Uh, that's about yeah, that's about it well I'm sorry you didn't get a, a better episode but thank you very much for coming on to the show to talk about it I chose I chose poorly <laughs> <laughs> your first choice was rejoined which was a very popular one that one went very early um, 
Yes, yes. Rejoined is more of well, the I hope character that, stuff. I hope one day I can come on again and uh, make a better decision. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Do you have anything you want to plug or any Twitter handle that people can find you at? Um, uh, yes. Yeah, so I'm the um, sub-editor of a magazine. It's called Ario, A-R-E-O, Ario Magazine. Um, and um, I would encourage you to check that out. And we also have a Patreon. It's completely um, reader and listener supported because there is also an accompanying podcast called Two for Tea, which you can find on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, all the usual um, podcast platforms. And I do both those things together with um, my captain, Helen Pluckrose. I'm the first officer on that ship. Mm -hmm. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Iona Italia. Yeah, you guys had Sarah Hader on recently. Um, yes, our, our last episode was with uh, Sarah Hader. Yep, and uh, I noticed that your your uh, your comrade in arms Helen got uh, the Sam Harris retweet recently, which was very exciting, uh, very interesting. Um, uh, yes, yeah, someone is also has also shot a documentary about Helen. Oh, really? You can follow her at H Pluckrose. Um, we are actually two separate people, although we have never been spotted in the same room at the same time. <laughs> but I assure you, um, you're the, you're the first not actually. Yeah, you're the, you're the first guest that we've actually had on. It's just me usually imitating o on multiple people and multiple voices, which is the way the podcast oh, were really? meant to be, I think. Yeah. <laughs> wow, I'm so honored. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you, guys. You can check out uh, his Twitter. You can check out... Uh, Ario, which is very interesting. It is a uh, fighting the good fight against the, the, the bad ideas that seem to be overwhelming the world at some points. Um, yes, it tries to, we try to be a nonpartisan um, liberal humanist magazine. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's um, right, right in the wheelhouse of uh, my personal politics, I think, is the way to describe it. But it's very good, very well done, great writing. Thank you very much for coming on. And uh, let's see here. So guys, if you enjoyed the show, you enjoyed the content, first time listening, check out all the social media links will be in the video description. You can go to patreon.com slash the Penske file if you want to support the show there. A couple of dollars a month, you get extra podcasts, you get extra listening, you get the ability to vote on episodes and stuff that we cover. You can go to Discord. We talk on Discord. It's a good place to be. And then outside of that, I think that's pretty much it. Oh, rate the show on iTunes. You can do it on your phone. It's the easiest way to do it. It's greatly helpful. It's supremely helpful. If you don't want to support the show on Patreon, all I ask is that you take two seconds to click your phone uh, podcast app, your iPhone, open it up and rate the show. Thank you very much, guys, for listening. Iona, again, thank you very much for coming on. My pleasure. And guys, we will see you next time with... What is the episode after this? It is... Little Green Men. Little Green Men. So Roswell-themed episode with uh, Quark and company. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>